you find yourself needing to learn more about D&D. What do you do? I cast Pod! Welcome to iCast Pod, a D&D podcast about creating characters, taking chances, rolling dice, and having fun. I'm Mike, your DM and guide to all things Dungeon-esque and Dragony. In this episode, we're talking about half-elves, rangers, guild artisans, hook horrors, and the Underdark. So let's get started. Heard any good rumours lately? We made it to 10 episodes. That's not including the two bonus episodes so far, so if you've listened to all 12, I want to thank you personally for coming on this journey with me. I've had almost 200 unique listeners, according to my stats, and they've come from all over the world. I've had listeners from the UK, the US, Canada, Germany, Iran, the Netherlands, Uruguay, and Australia. Wow. Thanks so much for listening, and here's hoping you stick with me for the next 10 shows. Fans of Summoner's Rift, rejoice! D&D and the League of Legends universe are getting a crossover in the form of Legends of Room Terror, Dark Tides of Bilgewater. This is a mini-campaign with details of the Rune Terror region of Bilgewater, including three new subclasses, Path of the Depths Barbarian, Renegade Fighter who has a firearm, and a Wildcard Rogue, and new monsters and items recognisable to any League of Legends or Legends of Rune Terror players. I've personally played a little bit of League and some Legends of Rune Terror, so I'm interested to see this setting. It's available now for free from D&D Beyond. It's already in my sources on D&D Beyond, and I literally can't think of any good reason for it not to be in yours, probably by the end of my sentence. Apart from maybe if your internet is down. But then how are you listening to this? Ah, downloaded for later listening, of course. Well, hop on as soon as it's back up then. Direct link in the show notes. The Book of Weird Magic. I mean, you've already sold me, but go on. From the makers of the Book of Bad Magic, another one for the list, Oliver Clegg has created a book of 21 weird and freaky subclasses for 5e, like the cat domain cleric who has an uncanny ability to climb or see things others don't, a fighter with tentacles for arms, does that make him a bipod? Monks who reject gravity the way others would reject third helpings at the salad bar, paladins who swear oaths to storytelling, A likely tale. Rogues that can replace one of their hands with a hand of glory. Sounds kind of gory. Which, for all that, for under $8 sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Available through the DM's Guild. Direct link in the show notes. Mythic Odysseys of Theros is on D&D Beyond from today. I covered it way back in episode 3, so go listen to that episode for more details. And that's the latest news in the D&D world. So now we're... To the races. Half-elf. Half-elves are said to combine the best qualities of both races. The artistic nature, refined senses, and love of nature of the elves, and the inventiveness, ambition, and curiosity of humans, with either side balancing and tempering the other. Coming from two worlds sometimes means not fully belonging to either. Half-elves that live among humans may find attachments difficult, watching their human parent as well as friends succumb to the ravages of time and eventually death 
while they remain largely unchanged. Humans think half-elves look like elves and generally treat them as such in any dealings between them. Conversely, half-elves who live among the elves find that they have reached adulthood while their previous peers are still living as children and older elves still thinking of the half-elves as such. The elves think half-elves look human and also treat them as such. Half-elves mature at approximately the same rate as humans and reach adulthood at around 20, but live much longer lives than humans. Often they live over 180 years. This can lead to feeling disavowed by both societies and half-elves sometimes flip between them, finding neither the welcome nor the feeling of belonging that they crave and many would say deserve. This can be further worsened by the fact that half-elves born into human settlements are most often given elven names. And of course half-elves born into elven communities are generally given human names, further marking them out as different from those around them. Half-elves have no territories or lands of their own, although they are generally allowed to mingle in human cities without too much bother. They are generally less welcome in elven forests. Those that integrate into society generally find uses for their natural charisma and social skills, earning them professions as disparate as swindlers or diplomats. And of course there are always those who state that the two are the same or are close enough as makes no difference. Half-elves inherit their love of personal freedom and creative expression from their elven parents. They generally neither desire followers nor wish to follow leaders and balk at rules. Their resentment of having to do what others say can lead them to becoming unpredictable or at worst unreliable and as such they tend towards chaotic alignments. Occasionally there are enough half-elves in a human settlement to form small communities and half-elves enjoy the company of others like themselves. Within their own kind they can find understanding and solace, empathy and kinship with others who have known the difficulties they face. They can discuss problems and issues dealing with other races with others who have gone through the same and gain advice and wisdom of how to proceed with not only that issue but also with their lives in general. Unfortunately not all human settlements contain half-elves and even fewer elf societies harbour them. A half-elf might spend years living in the same place or even wandering without meeting another. Consequently, many half-elves choose to spend mostly solitary lives, either within another society or else leading the life of a wanderer, taking the open ro road as a travelling companion. Others take trades in solitary professions like trappers, foresters, hunters and others that allow them to spend swathes of time away from societies and the tangled web of problems they can be for half-elves. And of course, some take to the adventuring life, where other misfits, outcasts and non-conformists make up the larger part of the community and can feel welcome. Half-elves are physically similar to both races, usually between 5 and 6 feet tall. They are generally around the same height as humans or elves, with their build coming somewhere in between the slender elves and the broader humans, giving them an average weight of 100 to 180 pounds. Half-elf men can grow facial hair and some choose to hide their elven ancestry by growing a beard and covering their ear tips with helmets, hats, headbands, headscarves or other coverings. In terms of skin tone, they inherit the full range of tones from either parent, giving them a wider range of coloration than either race alone. Their eyes tend to take after their elven parent and they gain dark vision from this fact. They tend to be afflicted with the wanderlust that their elven kin also suffer, a product of their long lives which is exacerbated by their human curiosity and ambition. 
Considering all this, when creating a half-elf, consider the backgrounds of Hermit, Outlander, Entertainer, Charlatan, or even Sage, as all of these could play to either a charismatic, socially aware character, or else one who prefers to spend much of their time alone. Stat block. You get a plus two to charisma, and you can increase two other ability scores of your choice by one. Alignments are normally chaotic. Size is medium, speed is 30 feet, you have dark vision to 60 feet, and fey ancestry. Half-elves have advantage on saving throws against being charmed and magic cannot put them to sleep. Skills, you get proficiency in two skills of your choice. Your languages are common, elvish, and one other language of choice. You so classy. Ranger. Ask someone who their favourite ranger is, and these are the likely answers. Drizzt Erden. Minsk. Laurel Silverhand. Hank. Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Sylvanas Windrunner. Paul Gascoigne, the English soccer player who played for the team Queen's Park Rangers, which I think, not being a football fan myself, makes them sound like they should be working for the Forestry Commission. Or, what the hell is a ranger? And you can tell a lot about the person by their answer. Let me know how many of those you got out of eight, by the way, on Twitter, where I'm iCastPod. If you need the questions again, rewind, but don't forget to listen to the rest of the show afterward. You're back? Good. Rangers in D&D follow a similar pattern to Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings books. Or actually, are they more like Legolas? I'll leave that for you to debate, because according to my brief research, hoo boy, there's a lot of people debating how to assign D&D classes to Lord of the Rings characters. Anyway, known as Warriors of the Wilderness, Rangers do battle with creatures in the wild, be it ogres, giants, murderous beasts, or pillaging raiders. They are master trackers, able to follow quarry as a predator would, to move silently through the underbrush and stealthily creep up on targets to deliver a killing blow. They can take a particular prey as favoured and cast nature spells that emphasise speed, stealth and the hunt to complement their already stellar skills in those areas of combat. A ranger may make the main part of their income from subsidiary talents like hunting and skinning, selling the hides to tanners, the meat for the pot to share with their animal companion. Or they might work as a guide, safely delivering those who would pass through wild lands unscathed. They may sell their skills as a tracker too, but the main tenet rangers hold to is to protect civilization from attacks at its outskirts. Sometimes they may join up with groups of druids if their objectives align. Many rangers prefer solitude or a pet companion. Was that why your character became a ranger? To escape society? Maybe to be alone after a terrible tragedy? Or was it a calling to protect the wilds from those who would harm it? Looking to be the first and last required line of defence for civilization, rangers' fierce independence, skill set and outlook make them ideal adventurers. Used to sleeping on hard ground and getting into tussles with creatures of varying types kind of comes with the job. The most important stats to a ranger are dexterity and wisdom, but there are options to build a two-weapon fighting style which should focus on strength as primary. To make a quick build, use these guidelines and choose the Outlander background, which you can hear more about in Episode 7. The first mechanic rangers get is the favoured enemy and terrain features. From first level, your previous experience in tracking and hunting a particular type of creature allows you to choose a favoured enemy from 
aberrations, beasts, celestials, constructs, dragons, elementals, fey, fiends, giants, monstrosities, oozes, plants, and the undead, or you can choose two humanoid races like goblins and orcs. You then get advantage on all wisdom survival checks that, to track favoured enemies and on intelligence checks to recall information about them. You also learn one language spoken by your favoured enemy. You can add additional favoured enemies at 6th and 14th levels. Take into account that you will be meeting different types of monsters as you level up. For favoured terrain, your time in the wilds has made you adept at travelling and surviving in a particular type of environment. You can choose from arctic, coastal, desert, forest, grassland, mountain, swamp or the underdark. And there'll be more on this last one later. When making an intelligence or wisdom ability check related to your favoured terrain, you add double your proficiency bonus if you're using a skill you're proficient in. When travelling for more than an hour in your favoured terrain, difficult terrain doesn't slow your group, your group can't become lost except by magic, you remain alert to danger even if otherwise occupied doing things like foraging, navigating or tracking. If travelling alone, you can move stealthily at a normal pace. This includes travelling with an animal companion if playing the Beastmaster archetype, which there's more on that in a moment. You find twice as much food as normal while foraging. And while tracking, you learn the number of creatures, their sizes and how long ago they passed through the area. You choose additional favoured terrains at 6th and 10th levels. At 2nd level, you adopt a fighting style from Archery, which gives you a plus 2 to attack with ranged weapons. Defence, which gives a plus 1 to AC while wearing armour. Dueling, which gives a plus 2 to damage rolls when wielding a single melee weapon in one hand. Two-weapon fighting, you can add your ability modifier to the damage of the second attack. At second level, you gain spellcasting abilities. Your spells are nature-based, similar to druids. To start with, you know two first-level spells of your choice from the list, with matching spell slots. As with all casters, you expend a spell slot in order to cast a spell, but get all slots back after a long rest. Wisdom is your spellcasting ability. Your spell attack modifier is your wisdom modifier plus your proficiency bonus. Your spell save DC is 8 plus your wisdom modifier plus your proficiency bonus. At third level, you choose a ranger archetype. The player's handbook lists hunter and beastmaster, and Xanatha's Guide to Everything adds Gloomstalker, Monster Slayer, and Horizon Walker. The Hunter archetype gives you choices of extra attack reactions, extra damage, or an extra attack against a different creature within 5 feet of the first one you attacked, provided the second is in range of your weapon. You also get a choice of defensive tactics that can cripple opportunity attacks against you, or give a plus 4 bonus to AC against a single creature after it has hit you, or advantage on saving throws against being frightened. Later levels bring multi-attacks of varying types. For Beastmaster, you gain a beast companion that obeys your commands, and you've trained it to fight alongside you. Initial choices are Hawk, Panther and Mastiff, or any creature no larger than medium, and a, a challenge rating of a quarter or lower. You can add your proficiency bonus to the beast's AC, attack and damage rolls, as well as any saving throws and skills it is proficient in. It shares your initiative, but doesn't take an action unless you command it to. You can command it where to move without using an action, and can use an action to command it to attack, dash, 
disengage, dodge, or help. Once you gain an extra attack at level 5, you can attack yourself and command your companion to attack too. If you are incapacitated or absent, the beast acts on its own, prioritising protecting you and itself. It can take reactions such as opportunity attacks by itself. If your beast dies, you can spend 8 hours magically bonding with a new creature, provided it isn't hostile to you and meets the requirements. Gloomstalker You are at home in the dim and dark places of the world. You gain ambush abilities which give extra damage and extra speed, as well as increased dark vision, extra attacks and more. Horizon Walker Possibly the coolest ranger archetype name, this archetype has you guarding the material plane from threats from other planes of existence. You watch and guard planar portals and traverse the planes to seek your foes. You gain additional spells, the ability to magically detect planar portals, and extra force damage against creatures. Monster Slayer Dedicated to seeking out vampires, dragons, evil fae, fiends and other denizens of the night, as well as wielders of dark magics. You gain additional spells like protection from evil and good, magic circle or hold monster as you level, as well as a magical sense of how best to harm those you pursue, extra damage against a particular target, and abilities to stop enemy spells. Stat Your hit dice are 1d10 per level. Your hit points at level 1 is equal to 10 plus your constitution modifier. Your hit points at later levels are 1d10 or 6 plus your constitution modifier per level. Proficiencies Armour. A ranger can equip light and medium armour and shields. Your weapons are simple and martial. Tools, none. Your saving throws are dexterity and strength. Skills, you get to choose 3 from... Animal Handling, Athletics, Insight, Investigation, Nature, Perception, Stealth and Survival. Your equipment is scale mail or leather armour, two short swords or two simple melee weapons, a Dungeoneer's pack or an Explorer's pack, and a longbow and a quiver of 20 arrows. Background Check Guild Artisan you have honed your skills and become a member of an artisan's guild. You have renown in the mercantile world for your expert craftsmanship, valuable works and skills, and fair trading. You have lived the life of an apprentice, studying under the master, learning all you can from their tutelage, wisdom and bearing, until at last you earned the title of master yourself and presented your work to the guild for the board of elders' scrutiny. They deemed you worthy of the sponsorship they had invested in you and will be happy to take their cut of proceeds and annual dues from you. By the looks of things, their cut will account for a very tidy sum, as your work stands out in its field. You will be in demand for your services and creations and will be able to levy a high but still fair price for your products. Guilds tend to base themselves in cities, especially where there are several tradesmen from their line already working in residence. That way, they ensure a steady flow of money coming in, and secondly, it makes the meeting more fun if there are more than two people there. Sometimes, though, guilds cover large territories with tradesmen spanning several villages and towns. Those guys likely get together less, but when they do, watch out, it'll be a big night. Guild trades span the gamut of medieval professions, from alchemists and apothecaries through jewellers and gem cutters, all the way to woodcarvers, coopers and bowyers. 
You can select from the table on page 132 of the player's handbook or roll a d20 for a randomised trade. As an artisan, you can take raw materials and produce a saleable finished piece. You also know the ins and outs of the trade generally, will have proficiency in a certain type of tools and know the tenets of good business practices. Will you suspend production of your pieces during your time as an adventurer or continue to make and sell things on your downtime? You get the feature Guild Membership. You can rely on guildmates to put you up temporarily, offering both food and lodging. The guild may even pay for your funeral. Some larger towns and cities will often have a guild hall, which can be a good meeting spot and networking hub, allowing you to seek out allies, hires or patrons. Your guild may support you in times of legal trouble, provided you are innocent or if the crime would not besmirch the reputation of the guild by proxy. Then you're probably on your own. Guilds can also wield political power and often allies themselves with those who have it giving possibilities of backroom deals or to be able to rub shoulders with the people who get things done. You pay five gold pieces a month for guild dues and may be asked to donate more or a valuable magic item to grease the cogs of bureaucracy. If you miss payments, you must make up payment to remain in the guild's good stead. The player's handbook offers a mercantile alternative to the artisanal guild too. You belong to a guild of wandering caravan traders, shopkeepers or other sundry merchants. You earn your living by buying and selling the works of others or else the raw materials for the artisan to use and then taking your cut. Your guild could be a large consortium or a small family-run affair. Perhaps you imported or exported goods or arranged the caravan, its stock and route. Or maybe you had a stall on a market or in a bazaar. You could be a wandering merchant plying your trade as you travel with a band of adventurers. Maybe you took to the adventuring life to sell loot of all kinds, types and rarities. Perhaps your business is selling treasure and the casual looting is a means to an end. You steal treasure to restock your business, which is actually your primary concern. With this variant, you can choose to be proficient with navigator's tools instead of a particular set of artisan's tools, or even have an additional language to enable communication with suppliers. Guild artisans are hard-working with a strong work ethic and they value community and support networks. They can stray towards avarice if they're not kept in check, though. Stat block. Your skill proficiencies are insight and persuasion. Tool proficiencies. One type of artisan's tools or navigator's tools, etc. as previously mentioned. Work with your DM if unsure. Languages, one of your choice. Equipment, a set of artisan's tools, one of your choice or as otherwise noted. A letter of introduction from your guild, a set of traveller's clothes and a pouch containing 15 gold pieces. Monster Menagerie The Hook Horror The Hook Horror is a large monstrosity that usually lives in subterranean caves such as the cavernous expanse of the Underdark. Looking like a cross between a humanoid vulture and a chitinous insect, the hook horror stands at around nine feet tall, with a beaked head like a vulture, crested feathers on its neck, and a mottled grey beetle body with a thick exoskeleton that's covered in sharp studs. Adventurers who bested a hook horror often removed the exoskeleton to use as armour. The hook horror's legs resemble bird legs, 
but instead of wings, paws or hands, its upper limbs end in 12-inch long hooks, razor sharp and surrounded by red feathers. Must make it difficult for them to hug. Its eyes are multifaceted like an insect's. The hooks are the hook horror's primary method of combat, as one might expect, and they also use them to climb the craggy walls of the caves they live in, either to escape from foes, or more likely to crawl onto the ceiling and fall onto its prey. Hook horrors live in families of around 12 members, which are ruled by the eldest female. The matriarch normally puts her mate in charge of the group's hook horrors hunting groups, working together to corner and ambush creatures. They sleep about half the time, and move slowly when not under direct threat or pursuing prey. This reduces their food intake, but hook horror families are known to migrate to other areas if food is scarce. Some hook horror colonies even cultivate their own food, and due to a particular enzyme produced by a gland in their abdomen, they are able to eat things that would be poisonous to most creatures like violet fungi, phycomids and zygums. They are omnivorous but prefer meat from whatever creatures they could catch and have an odd predilection for eating silver and electrum objects which they cannot digest so they just pass through them unchanged apart from an understandable odour. Hook horrors reproduce by laying eggs in a central location that they guard closely. The eggs are camouflaged to look like rocks and are spread out in the cavern to lessen their chance of being discovered. The eggs hatch after six months, with babies being around a foot long. By a year they are five foot tall and reach full height by 17. Hook horrors remain with their parents until their second year when they become more and more independent and hook horrors leave their parents by their third year and seek out their own mates by six. The average life expectancy of a hook horror is less than 40 years in part because of the dangerous areas they live in and the subsequent battles they find themselves enmeshed in but also partly because they are particularly susceptible to parasites and disease. Far from mindless beasts, hook horrors not only speak undercommon, but have their own language, which consists of communicating in a series of clicks and clacks created by striking their hooks against their exoskeletons. While discussing matters like friendship, their clicks are of a softer tone, but when discussing food, they would become loud and frenzied. Due to the echoing of the caverns and caves they dwell in, their conversations can be carried out over miles. Hook horrors have poor eyesight and are sensitive to bright light, which isn't unusual in subterranean creatures. They make up for this with their keen sense of smell and their ability to produce a high-pitched noise which cannot be heard by most creatures, but enables the hook horror to use echolocation in order to traverse the rugged underdark. Perhaps the best-known hook horror in D&D lore didn't even start out life as a hook horror, but a petch. A small humanoid creature with brown or grey skin that have a natural affinity with the earth and stone, and so usually live in similar places to hook horrors, such as the expansive cavern of the Underdark. Clacker originally appeared in the R.A. Salvatore series about everyone's favourite drow, the legend of Drizzt. Clacker met with his fate at the hands of the wizard Brister Fendlestick, who turned him from a petch into a hook horror, causing him to forget his original name as well as the memories of his life as a petch as he slowly transformed into the hook horror internally, reflecting his exterior. Of course, he could no longer be part of the petch community, so set out alone to live out his days in exile as a hook horror. It was during this time that he met Drizzt, along with the swerf neblin Belwar Disengulp. 
the two companions befriended Clacker and tried to get Fendlestick to reverse his spell, but Fendlestick, who was contemptuous of Petch, refused, and Clacker killed him in a fit of rage. The party were later captured by Illithids, and Clacker was put to work for them, shepherding the Mind Flayer's food supply. Clacker's unusual mind, part Petch, part Hook Horror, gave him better resistance to the Illithids' mind control, and he escaped, reuniting with his friends Diz, Drizzt and Belwar. Unfortunately, Clacker the Petch was aware of the bestial nature of the Hook Horror taking over, and begged his friends to end his life, which they refused to carry out. To avoid spoilers, I'll leave Clacker's poignant tale for you to read. I loved the first three books of the Drizzt story and think they're well worth checking out, so I'll pop a cheeky affiliate link in the show notes to buy them on Amazon. Stat block. Hook horrors are classed as a large monstrosity. They are of neutral alignment. Challenge rating 3. Their AC is 15, which is natural armour. They have 75 hit points, or 10d10 plus 20. Their speed is 30 feet. They have a perception of plus 3 and a passive perception of 13. They have blind sight to 60 feet and dark vision to 10 feet. They speak hook horror and undercommon. They have echolocation, which cannot be used if the hook horror is deafened. They have keen hearing, which gives them advantage on perception wisdom checks that rely on hearing. They also have a multi-attack because they can attack with both hooks. The hook attack is a melee attack with plus 6 to hit, a reach of 10 feet, 1 target, and a hit equals 11 or 2d6 plus 4 piercing damage. Law Academy The Underdark The Underdark comprises a vast, cavernous network of caves, tunnels and spaces under the surface of Toril. It hosts many creatures, often evil, that the law states were driven underground at the end of the Age of Demons. It's not always possible to traverse the Underdark from end to end due to tunnel collapses, shifting earth and dead ends. The Underdark is divided into several areas and domains, much like the world above, which is the name the denizens of the Underdark give to the surface world. The first area is the Upper Dark, which consists of the first three miles below the surface. This is where surface dwellers would meet those of the Underdark. The Middle Dark is located between 3 to 10 miles below the surface. This area is where most of the cities of the Underdark are located. Finally, the Lower Dark is anything more than 10 miles down. Most inhabitants of the Underdark avoid this area also. The major domains are the Buried Realms, which lies underneath the massive desert of Anarok, which was completely surrounded by the Sharn Wall, a magical barrier created to contain the hideous and evil Faerim race. It also contains the ruins of the old Netherese Empire. The Darklands, which is under the Dragon Coast, parts of the Orsrown Mountains and Chisenta. It contains the Dwergar city of Dunspirin. The Deep Wastes, which is under the Dalelands and the Moon Sea. It is sparsely populated due to the collapse of the drow city of Merimydra, which used to claim rule over the surface city of Shadowdale. The Earthroot, under the unapproachable east, Thay and the Sunrise Mountains. It contains the Dwergar realm of 
Frazumdin, and the drow city of Undrekthos, as well as the ruins of the ancient empires of War, Raumathar, and Imaskar. The Glimmer Sea, sometimes referred to as the Sea of Starry Night. The Glimmer Sea lies 20 miles under the Sea of Fallen Stars in central Faerun. Some of the Glimmer Sea's depths can reach thousands of feet. It is also famous for ribbons of water cascading down from the vault's ceilings. It gets its name from the luminescent rocks that line the ceilings. Several powerful aboleth, amphibious eel-like psionic aberrations, cities, lie within its depths, and kuotoa, amphibious fishmen, also known as gogglers, and, oh, blummy heck, sawajin, or sawagin, also known as sea devils, a race of humanoid creatures that look like the creature from the Black Lagoon but with long tails, have outposts that can be found in its shallows. Great Berindon. Underneath the vast plains of Shah, this domain was the first homeland of the dwarves, but was conquered by the drow when they first went underground to search for a realm of their own, which they called Telantiwa. This realm was destroyed when the domed ceilings of the vault crashed down for reasons still unknown, crushing many drow cities and causing the Great Rift. The North Dark. This area is one of the better known parts of the Underdark, residing under Waterdeep and containing the drow cities of Menzo Baranzan, the birthplace of Drizd, and Chednazad, as well as the Swerfneblin ruins of Blingdenstone, the Dwergar Deep Kingdom of Grackelstuch, and various crumbled ancient ruins like Amarindar, Delzun, and Netheril. Old Shantar, stretching for hundreds of miles under Am, Tethir, and Kalimshan, it was once the home of the dwarf realm of Deep Shantar, which it was named after, but was mostly de- destroyed, conquered, or overrun by Drow, Dwergar, and Illithids. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, I would love to hear your thoughts. Tell me what you think works about the show or what you think I can improve on. You can email me at icastpod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter or Instagram as at icastpod. I create all the content you see on the show and here on the show and social media. If you'd like to help support the show, there are ways to do that. Firstly, subscribe. Secondly, leave us a review on iTunes if you're a user. Reviews there really help the show get heard by new fans. Until next time, my friends, may Timora bless your endeavours.